Wildfires are scorching the West Coast, leaving behind a path of death and destruction. Forecasters call it a bomb cyclone. Winds of 150 miles per hour. Tens of millions of Americans are dealing with dangerously high temperatures, with many areas hitting triple digits. Scientists say climate change is worsening flooding around the world. This is going to get really ugly really fast here. This is Ben Adler from Yahoo News. Today, we are joined by UCLA climate scientist Daniel Swain, a new generation of scientists who is using social media and a blog to reach the public directly. He'll talk to us about how we know extreme weather is linked to climate change. He was interviewed by my colleague, David Knowles. David, what was your main takeaway from your interview? Well, I followed Daniel on Twitter now for a little while, and he's kind of become the the must-go-to climate scientist on that platform for a lot of reporters who end up just using his tweets and stories, and he encourages that. He, he really reaches out to the media whenever he can. He's very much in demand. Every story I started reading in the New York Times and the Washington Post, I realized, oh, they have, they have a quote from Daniel. And um, I'm just really impressed with his ability to communicate complex models to the general public. And so I found him to be a very articulate spokesperson. And it made me wonder about the role that climate scientists play in helping shape this debate and whether or not they need to take a bigger role to help people understand why we are going to need to make the kinds of changes that we are. So that's really why I wanted to talk to him. You know, he's a very outspoken guy in terms of how we understand that these extreme weather events, the extreme drought that we've seen in the West over the past several years, why that's linked to climate change, why these heat domes and individual heat events are also attributable to climate change. And, you know, he gave a lot of fascinating answers about that. And I think there are a lot of skeptics who, for a long time, really took the cue of a lot of climate scientists who warned that you shouldn't look at a specific hurricane and, and immediately blame climate change, right? Well, that attitude has changed a lot over the past 10 or so years. And part of that is that we just have much better modeling at our disposal. Part of it is we've seen the results of the past 10 years, the predictions that climate scientists have made for decades now keep coming true again and again and again. And so at a certain point, you get to the place where you say, if I can predict this with scientific accuracy, if my hypotheses keep coming true, then it's a good bet that actually there's something going on here. The, the causal link that has been supposed actually turns out to be true. And so that's kind of the crux of our conversation. I just want to start off by noting how American attitudes about whether man-made climate change are real have been increasing over the past several years, especially as more extreme weather events have unfolded and impacted the lives of more people. This past year especially seems to have been something of a turning point for a lot of people. But it's not just lay people. Climate scientists have also had a role in this in that they've been more comfortable in linking 
directly the extreme weather that we've been seeing with climate change. Can you help our listeners understand, you know, what accounts for their growing certainty? Yeah, it's really interesting that this subfield of climate science known as extreme event attribution has really come into its own over the past five or 10 years. And really, that's the catalyst for the shift, I think, on the science side, at least, in the conversation where, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, you might have heard very vehement sort of exhortations not to link specific weather events to climate change. And it was the climate scientists who were saying that. And so you might ask, well, what has changed in the meantime? And several things have changed, actually. One is that the climate has continued to change over the past couple of decades, continued to get warmer. And we now have a much longer observed reality of climate change and the subsequent increase in certain kinds of extreme events to the point that it's now a lot clearer than it once was, that there's a clear link to climate change just on the basis of having more real-world data. That's one thing that's changed. Another thing that's changed is that our ability to model changes in climate and specifically the kinds of extreme events that we, are, we care about when we talk about this attribution kind of topic, you know, the, the hurricanes, the wildfires, the floods, the heat waves, our ability to simulate these mathematically and physically has improved over that period as well. And there's also just been a sort of a shift in the overall, I think, mentality surrounding the purported difference between weather and climate. And I think that while it is important to be clear that when we talk about climate, we're talking about long time scales and broad regions. And when we talk about weather, we're inherently talking about short time scales and smaller regions, you know, what's happening in your city today and tomorrow, not what's happening in North America 40 years from now. I think that those divisions between weather and climate have maybe been overly emphasized over the years because fundamentally it's the same atmosphere, whether it's you're talking about variations between today and tomorrow or variations between 30 years ago to 30 years from now. So the same laws of physics apply, the same chemistry is relevant. And so I think that one of the challenges that has been overcome is that as we've gotten more data and better models, the scientific conversation has shifted a bit too to say, well, you know, weather and climate exist on a spectrum. You probably should be thinking about them in the same breath. Let's go back to a little bit about what you just said about the modeling and how the models have gotten so much better. Does that mean that there's a predictive element that just keeps showing up and coming true that we're able to check these forecasts? Are they just coming true in a way that makes it undeniable that, yes, the models were correct and they were accurate. One of the interesting things is that from a certain physical science perspective, we didn't even really need very sophisticated climate models to make predictions that turned out to be correct about certain kinds of extreme events. And so I'll be specific here. It's long been understood that as the Earth's overall climate warmed, that we would see perhaps unsurprisingly, an increase in the frequency and intensity of extreme heat waves. And probably the next most directly related to thing to temperature would be an increase in really extreme precipitation and flash flood events. And those are indeed the two things that we've seen a very large increase in, uh, exactly as pretty basic thermodynamics would suggest would be likely. 
uh, which is consistent with these much more sophisticated climate models. And so this is something that was a, a prediction that was made even before climate models, their current level of sophistication, because it was something that kind of came out of the basic physics of the situation. It's more complicated if we're talking about hurricanes or wildfires or droughts. It's not always so obvious what's going on there. I wanted to speak a little bit about the scientific consensus in the most recent summary to policymakers. The IPCC states that it's, quote, unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean, and land. The science does seem more and more settled on all of these questions. And as you're saying, the modeling is, you know, a, a big part of that. But is there anything about the causal mechanisms that we're still unclear about at this stage? Or when we say unequivocal, do we mean we're pretty clear on how this whole thing works? Yeah, so the statement about the fact that the warming that we've observed is real and that human activities are essentially the singular cause of that warming, that is unequivocal at this, at this point. But I think it's important to differentiate that statement that you know the reality of global warming and the fact that humans are the cause being equivocal, which it is according to multiple lines of evidence that converged over the years to the point that now there is really no other alternative explanation left. To distinguish that from the more nuanced and regionally specific questions about specific kinds of extreme events. So the question of, you know, will there be more hurricanes or stronger hurricanes in the Caribbean, for example, is a very different question from has the earth warmed? Is it because of human activities and will it continue to warm, for example? The answer to that latter question is unequivocally yes. The answer to that, the other question about hurricanes in a specific region is a lot more nuanced and it's less clear what the answer is. So the more you drill down regionally and for specific kinds of events, there is still some uncertainty that's actually important. And really, it's the farther you get from the basic thermodynamics, the farther you get from temperature changes themselves, essentially, the more complicated the answer becomes. So are we extremely confident that in a global basis, there's been an increase in, in unprecedented extreme heat waves and that there will continue to be because of human-caused warming? Yeah, that's really high on the list. Same thing with increase in extreme precipitation events essentially everywhere. But what about when we talk about other kinds of extremes, you know, hurricanes and storms and wildfires in certain regions? And while we certainly have evidence and we can make nuanced arguments about the fact that perhaps there will be stronger but perhaps fewer hurricanes and that wildfires are influenced by, you know, a complex web of different influencing factors, one among them being climate change, it really depends on the specific event in question. And that actually really gets back at this overall question of extreme event attribution. To what extent can we say that X extreme event was either influenced or strongly influenced by climate change? It really depends on the physical event type. So we can't make blanket statements about extreme events and climate change in general. We need to make more targeted statements about extreme heat waves or downpours or the intensity of hurricanes versus the frequency of hurricanes, for example. And so that's the other, I think, key insight in the climate attribution world where really we need to make different statements about different kinds of events and sometimes different statements about different regions. Right. So on that note, you're somebody who 
has specifically specialized in the connection between climate change and these extreme weather events. And, you know, I follow you on, on Twitter, for instance, and I, I'm always watching, you know, what you're saying about uh, the different heat waves that we've seen in the West or the wildfires or, or what have you. So I'm wondering if you can give people sort of the basic thumbnail for why we're seeing almost a country that feels like it's divided in two right now with this extreme drought on the West, these massive heat waves, the wildfires in the West, and then this inundating rain that's happening on the other half of the country and in the eastern part of the country, and how those things can simultaneously be happening due to global warming. Yeah, it's an interesting question because, you know, the folks who live in the regions that are getting wetter assume that, you know, the whole world's getting wetter and the folks who live in regions that are getting drier are assuming that everyone's getting drier in a warming world, whereas the reality is there shouldn't be a globally uniform increase in wetness or dryness. The, in fact, the fact that it is spatially inhomogeneous, the fact that the patterns do vary from region to region, one area getting wetter, one area getting drier, is actually one of the reasons why we're, we're increasingly confident about our predictions, because that's what should be happening according to climate models. Not everywhere should be getting wetter on average, and not everywhere should be getting drier. It should be somewhat regionalized. And not all the changes we're seeing, you know, with areas getting wetter and areas getting drier, are exclusively due to climate change. Some of that is just shorter-term bad luck. But to the extent to which these patterns are linked to climate change, and there are links to climate change in both instances in terms of the eastern U.S. getting wetter and much of the West getting drier, we have to think carefully about what's causing that. And out West, a lot of what's happening is with the drying, for example, it's linked to the rising temperatures directly. So what's really interesting is that most of California, for example, despite the incredibly severe drought that's ongoing right now and the very severe, at that point, unprecedented drought that happened just a few years ago, there hasn't really been much of a long-term decline in precipitation. And everyone's always surprised when I point that out. But what's happening is we've seen particularly bad strings of really low precipitation years coinciding with record hot temperatures. And so it's this combination of partly of bad luck but then, you know, increasing proportion of something that's not random bad luck, something that is directly related to climate change, which is the fact that it's getting warmer and the same amount of water just doesn't go as far as it used to. And I don't just mean that in terms of, you know, the urban water supply and reservoirs. I mean, on the landscape, the soil is drier, the vegetation is drier. That has major implications for wildfires. In fact, that's the primary link between climate change and increasing wildfire severity in the American West is through how dry the soil and vegetation are becoming due to warming. And so it's nuanced and it's not always what you might expect in the sense that, you know, we don't expect California to see dramatically less precipitation in the future, but we do expect the droughts to be significantly more severe. And how can that be? It's really the direct effect of, of rising temperatures. But I think that the broader point is well taken that you know, different regions are experiencing very different local, regional manifestations of climate change. And in a country as big as the U.S., it's particularly dramatic, where the western U.S. has been extremely dry and hot in recent years, and the northeastern U.S. has been extremely wet, although I would note also quite hot. And that's the place where all of us are sort of having a similar experience. 
it's not really getting cooler anywhere, but it, it's getting warmer to different degrees in different places. And that's unfortunately a, a major part of that shared experience um, from not just within the U.S., but globally as well. Right. With your blog, Weather West, and, and with your rather large Twitter following, you're constantly engaging people and sort of reaching out to the general public with your observations, and, and you're somebody who's in the conversation about climate change. Can you talk about the importance of having experts, of having climate scientists directly interact with the public about this and what you see as the role there? I think a lot of the importance and the value of having scientists themselves be active communicators in this process, particularly in the realm of climate science, but I think we have similar and parallel examples from the realms of public health and virology from in this pandemic era, is that sometimes in order to distill information down to an essence that's digestible by folks who aren't subject experts, Sometimes things get lost in translation when it's not the subject matter experts doing that distillation. And we've kind of seen this in rapid, you know, rapid fire succession during the pandemic, where, you know, even as a scientist, but not as a, you know, a, a health scientist, it's very difficult for me to follow the week to week, the month to month variations in sort of what is going on, what the advice, the most recent advice is, et cetera. So it's, it's no wonder that a lot of folks are feeling frustrated with that whiplash. But in a lot of cases, the whiplash is not really as pronounced as it appears to be. So from a scientific perspective, the way some of these late-breaking findings, really in any scientific field, are reported in the media, it kind of sounds as if scientists are constantly changing their mind about everything, vacillating back and forth. You read the newspaper article about is chocolate good for you is chocolate bad for you and it goes back and forth every six months for as long as i can remember but even the, the nutrition scientists will out there will point out the fact that actually the underlying understanding of these things hasn't really shifted it's just this hyper focus on the need to sometimes create a story out of like a new paper came out and it has seven different findings and so it gets amplified so the, I guess what I'm saying is this is certainly a climate science problem, but it's also a broader science and information dissemination problem, you know, in the modern era, which is that sometimes science really does need to be contextualized. And, you know, I'm active on Twitter. I, it's not that you can't be short and pithy with that contextualization of science, but it really needs to be done from a perspective of deep understanding about the issues that surround the issue itself. So science, you know, information is not useful in a vacuum. It really is only useful in context. And I think the key value there is in providing that context and having scientist communicators who are willing to do the work to understand the context of the fields that sort of are on the periphery of their own field and to go out there into the public to speak with journalists, to speak with whatever audience isn't an expert technical audience, and distill those facts in a way that is, you know, to the best of your ability, contextually accurate, not just the facts in isolation, but what do those facts mean in your daily life in the context of the broader issues of the day? I think that's where scientists and journalists can really make a lot of progress, but the problem is it's hard to do. It takes a lot of time you know, it's a, it, it takes a lot of commitment, both from the scientists and the journalists and, you know, whatever institutions are employing both the scientists and the journalists. And I think that 
for a variety of reasons, it's sometimes difficult to convince those institutions that these kind of interactions are actually a core part of the job in both in both cases. Interesting. As a, an expert, as a climate scientist, is, are there things that uh, the media or the public get wrong about climate change that just really irritate you over time or things that stand out as being sort of the classic mistakes about how people talk about climate change? Well, there's a few tiers of this. Um, <laughs> and, you know, without spending too long on this topic, I think there's like two main classes of it. One is that climate change, and we still get this, is some, you know, fabrication by the elites of society to maintain some sort of perceived benefit to the societal elite, which apparently includes scientists, um, which is interesting. So there's this conspiratorial angle that climate change isn't real, and there's only emphasis in, you know, on, on all issues related to climate, because someone's got a vested interest in promoting green solutions in society. And that's dying out, I think. It's becoming harder and harder to, to ignore the fact that the conditions outside your your you know your bedroom window are actually observably changing in a lot of cases. So that's I think that's on the way out. But on the other side of the spectrum, there's this there's this newer thing that's emerging. I get a lot of this in my inbox these days. The the idea of climate doom and doomism, and the idea that climate change is not only real but it is in fact so bad and accelerating so quickly that there's now nothing we can do about it. And so we should just sit by and enjoy the rest of our lives while we have a habitable planet. And the problem is that's equally unrooted in scientific reality as the first perspective, in the sense that, yes, climate change is very real, it's very serious, and it's getting worse quickly. But the key is that we still have the power to halt climate change. There's no reason to believe that if we bring global carbon emissions to zero in the next couple of decades, that climate change won't pretty much stop uh, shortly thereafter. So it's both good news and bad news. The good news is we're in control of the climate system largely, and if we choose to, to make the choices that would halt climate change, climate change will probably halt. And the problem with that is that if we don't make the changes that are likely to result in a better climate future, then it's not going to happen on its own, and we will continue on a trajectory that is not good. And so it's sort of that double-edged sword, where the reality is that we can still fix this problem, but the other reality, the dueling reality, is that we have not yet moved in significant ways to fix the problem. So we're sort of in this, this danger zone in between. Lastly, I just this is sort of outside of your expertise as a climate scientist, but just on a personal note, are you knowing what it takes to go down to net zero emissions and uh, and how long that'll take to affect the climate system? Are you optimistic about where things are heading given where we stand? And already it looks like there's uh, some disagreement among the, the key signatories of what could be a, a new agreement. How do you uh, assess where we're heading? It's a, it's, a, it's a tough question because, you know, as I mentioned, it's certainly within our collective societal power to fix this problem. But because this is, it's become, at this point, it's more of a political question than a scientific or technological one, honestly. I mean, we could, we know how to solve this problem. We know the kinds of specific things we need to be doing even to, to fix the problem. But that will involve 
um, a significant amount of social and economic, you know, inertia uh, that needs to shift pretty quickly. And that's hard to do. And, you know, to be totally honest, the, the developments globally on the political scale over the last couple of years have not been encouraging from my perspective. You know, we, for as much progress as we had hoped to make by now, we're kind of still where we were five or 10 years ago. You know, there's a lot of pledges, there's a lot of commitments, which even then aren't enough to solve the problem, but we aren't even really on track to meet a lot of those pledges that we previously made. And so we are gonna have to scale things up pretty fast. And it becomes, of course, harder to do so, the faster we would have to do it. You know, if we had started this process 15, 20, 30, even years ago, the slope toward the greener future would have been a lot more gradual. Now, the slope would have to be pretty steep. And, you know, societal transitions on this scale are uh, very difficult. I think we've, we've sort of experienced that in this pandemic era where a lot of things around the world were upended. But the optimistic view is that at least the pandemic was something that was, you know, not anticipated. It kind of caught a lot of people and a lot of governments and society by surprise. We've been talking about climate change for a long time. It's not a surprise. And we know what we need to do to address it. So I hope we've learned some lessons. But ultimately, it, it comes down to being a policy question, not just in the U.S., but really all around the world. You know, what do governments and societies decide to do to address this rapidly worsening global problem? And I think, you know, years like this year, where we see these unbelievably extreme heat waves and extreme flood events in numerous locations, you know, all around the Northern Hemisphere this summer, I think should give us pause because, you know, these were horrifying and shocking when they happened, and yet they are not going to be horrifying or shocking probably just five or 10 years from now anymore. And so that's kind of the, the world that we live in right now, which is this tension between the fact that this is at a fundamental level a solvable problem, but we've so far not taken it seriously enough. I liken it more to being on a train, not a runaway train where the brakes don't work, but a train where the brakes are perfectly functional, but the conductor is just actively choosing not to apply them. So if we choose to apply the brakes, uh, the train will slow down and come to a halt. But so far, we're still just thinking about tapping the brakes lightly. It's not enough. So I guess that's where I would leave us. Well, I think we're going to have to take solace in at least the fact that if the conductor does wake up and applies the brakes, we have some some hope. I do take solace, I think, in that in that fact that you know this this is ultimately a solvable problem, and there are some problems that really feel like there, there is no solution, and I don't think this is one of them. So, so that's I think I think that's probably you know my optimistic take on, on the whole situation. All right. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for talking with us today. We really appreciate you taking the time. Definitely. Thank you again for the invitation.